You want to sing into the cat? <laughs> oh, let the cat be free, Milana. <laughs> okay, if you can get him to do that to the tune of our opening song, that would be really funny. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey guys, you're listening to the Tri-Weekly Podcast that explores feminist figures and the arts and sciences. I'm recording outside of Richmond, Virginia, where I'm on traditional Powhatan land. And I am your friendly neighborhood science gremlin coming at you from traditional Lenape land up in Philadelphia. Today we're going to learn about a 21st century Argentinian artist. She won't tell me what kind. My bet is sculptor. It's a surprise. <laughs> and we're also going to learn about a 20th century aerospace engineer. Ooh. Do they work at NASA? No. Okay. I feel like, wait, are they American? Yes. Oh, God. Don't tell me it's like stupid SpaceX or something. Wait. <laughs> no. Okay. So my... Assumption is just if you're in that line of field, you're going to work for NASA here in the United States. So who is this woman and where did she work? We are going to California. We're going to go to the labs that put us in space. Her name was Judith Love Cohen. She was born August 16th, 1933 in Brooklyn, New York. Mm -hmm. So middle of the Great Depression. Sure, that must have been fun for her parents. Yeah. I mean, I didn't I didn't really get a lot of what happened with her parents, but she she still made things work and she was like from a very early age, like they knew she was smart. So, 5th grade, her classmates were paying her to do their math homework. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can proudly say that was not the case for me when I was in 5th grade. <laughs> she was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Just give me um is that taffy?" I'll take that, Taffy. Got you. Whatever it is, though, like, she had several counselors tell her to, like, go learn how to be a woman. Ugh. Yeah. It was bad. But by 19, thankfully, she didn't listen to them. She was studying as an undergrad and dancing ballet in the Metropolitan Opera Ballet Company in New York. Right. Okay. And I was 19. I was also most definitely not doing nope. that. <laughs> she was like, uh, I like doing all these things, so that's what I'm going to do. And then, I mean, she really liked math, and she was going to be a math teacher originally. But I guess when she mm -hmm. got into an engineering class, she was like, whoa, I really like this. So she technically got a scholarship for going for math, I guess, because mm -hmm. she was a woman, and that was the way that she would learn how to teach math. But I think, honestly, they weren't, like, they didn't think of giving her a scholarship for engineering, but she was like, I'm okay. Mm. This is fine. Yeah. So the end of her freshman year, she meets a man named Bernard Siegel, and they get married like months later, not even a year later, less than. Did it, did it work out? You should see my face right now. Like, that's usually not a good idea. <laughs> Your face is pretty great. Yeah, I know. When I read that, I was like, oh, Judith, no. Yeah, this might end poorly. <laughs> I mean, she, she did two years at Brooklyn College, and then they actually, for some reason, ended up moving to California. At, but she works at the North American Aviation Company. And then at night, she went to school. 
like to finish her undergrad in engineering. Okay. North American Aviation was a major American aerospace manufacturer, and it was responsible for a lot of well-known air and space crafts during the, like, since 1928. So NASA might have used it, but they were the people who made them. Okay. Like certain things, yeah. Also software as well and programming. Like a third-party supplier kind of. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she was more of an en- like a programming engineer, so she was mm-hmm. all about like computers and shit, which I don't understand. <laughs> my brain my brain hurts every time my roommate talks about like his networking IT job and I'm like I don't I don't I don't under what <laughs> yeah well meanwhile I'm over here playing with clay so <laughs> that's where I'm at. that's fair yeah we all have our we all have our strong suits honestly this manufacturer was bought and merged several times with several huge companies, like five times. I don't even know where they landed, but whatever happened, she spent her entire career in that same department, in that same lab. Okay. She has said on numerous occasions that she went through both undergrad and her master's degree without meeting a single other female engineering student. (sighs) That doesn't surprise me. So sad. It's super upsetting. Because at that point, what? It's like the 19... 40s, or I guess more 50s when she's going through and getting her education, right? Well, by the time she's done, it was 1962. Okay. Yeah. And it was still like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? She's the only engineer you've met. Um, That's depressing. And even then, like, these hard sciences, I don't know a lot of engineering women. Like, the science women that I do know, like, I know an epidemiologist. I know microbiologist i know pas nursing yeah i don't know a lot of like math crunchy yeah no even 50 over 50 years later there's still a disproportionate representation within those fields not great although i mean she definitely tried to make things better for like Mm -hmm. other women you know she would she'd be like why isn't this job posted on like a board that everyone can see like what's with this nepotism that's happening here like i don't know she's just very like i can do things these other women can do things and you have to give us this chance Mm -hmm. but yes 1962 she's been an engineer for 10 years received both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in engineering birthed three kids named neil howard and rachel and she had time to pick up recreational folk dancing Wait, what? <laughs> like how like one of these things is not blonde. Like, okay. Degree, check. Advanced degree, check. Started a family too. Check, check, check. <laughs> traditional folk dancing? Yeah, recreational folk dancing, man. I don't know. What type? But I mean, I I I don't know. It didn't say if it was like Irish or Scott. I don't know, man. Polka or okay. I don't, all right. But like also she was a she was a ballet performer at the age of 19, so she's dancing is a is a common theme in her life. All right, fair point. <laughs> it's just it's just a very odd kind of dancing. You're like, wow. Okay, that works, I guess. I don't know, man. Literally, I wrote in my notes, IDK man in caps. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So you were right earlier, 1960, Bernard and Judith divorce uh, okay dun, dun, dun. entering her life now is a man named tom black okay by the 1960s she's married and pregnant with her fourth and last child 
so many babies. So many babies. <laughs> so it is said that during the birth of her last child, she was so engulfed with this problem at work that when she went into labor, she took the problem with her to the hospital to work on it yeah. while she was in labor, had the baby, solved the problem, and then calls her boss to tell him that she fixed the problem. And, oh, the baby's here. <laughs> you know what? Next time you're really stuck on something at work, I don't think that's the quickest solution <laughs> to problem solving it. I mean, kudos for her. And also, when you're going through that, you know, whole experience, I imagine it's nice to have something else to keep your mind on. Yeah. It's like, oh, these contractions are just getting worse, but I need to know where this too goes. Like... <laughs> Carry over? Oh, crap. Where did I drop a decimal point? Oh, like, my God. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm dead. <laughs> she was a beast. The baby, by the way, grows up to be Jack Black. Okay. <laughs> I, I think I saw, like, one of those, like, did you know memes, like, floating around and, like, it, yeah, it was something along the lines of, like, Jack Blatt's mother had a very serious job. And you're like, wow, that's very different from his career. <laughs> Here we are. I'm seeing this meme to fruition. That's, yeah, no, legitimately, that is his birth story. She was too busy, <laughs> like, solving an aerospace problem for work. Oh, my God. I I mean, she was a little off. He's a little off. Everything's great, really. <laughs> All right. Now I know. Uh, so, big career accomplishments are as follows. First one, we don't really love. She worked on the guidance system for the Minuteman missile, which was an intercontinental ballistic missile built in 1961. And yes, it was nuclear. Okay. Yeah. She didn't really like that one. The one she really liked was her work on the Apollo 13 mission. Okay. How much do you know about Apollo 13? Was that the one they made a movie about? Yeah. Okay. A dramaturgy. That's what I know. So I didn't, I don't think I've ever seen it just because, like, it's definitely not my kind of movie. Yeah. Without getting too much into it, the 13th model of the Apollo was also the 7th manned Apollo mission to the moon. And there were three people on it. So, like, a faulty wire was ignited after a pretty routine oxygen stir, like, an oxygen tank opened up, did a thing, and then the faulty wire was like, oh, no! And then an explosion happened. A pretty big one. Okay. Yeah. And it was early in the mission, so they had to abort their mission, shut down a lot of their resources, vent oxygen, like, hold on to as much as they could. Mm -hmm. It took them about five days to get back home. It was not great. I'm not going to get too far into it. I tried reading through the play-by-play, -play and I was like, I don't. I don't have time for this. <laughs> Is that the movie where it's like Houston would have a problem? Yes, that one. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's because there was a giant fucking hole in the side of their uh, their spacecraft because of an explosion. Yeah. That actually they knew that there was an issue. Like, from the beginning, like, they saw that there was, like, an issue, and they were like, oh, it's fine. It's not fine. No, no, not when you're going in space. No. You can't just stop at your local Wawa to check things out. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, we, you know, there was a little bit of, like, a warning, but we were like, oh, it's fine. This is cool. We can keep going forward. This was not her choice. This was not what she did. Okay. 
All right. As they cat like came back, their return trip, they actually relied heavily on a backup program, like a backup problem program that they didn't think was going to be used because it was mm-hmm. such a like an oh shit like last resort program. Yeah. That was the program that they that she had worked on. That has to be like really satisfying because I'm sure the whole time you're programming it, you're like, this probably isn't gonna be used. But just in case. Yeah, you know. Just gonna do this thing. Yeah, no, I was like, ah, yeah. uh, well, that's unfortunate that that happened, but at least there was something awesome and a, like an awesome woman and an awesome crew to back them up. So much so that mm-hmm. like the actually the crew on the Apollo after everything was like kind of like they like dying down, they went to the facility. They went to her facility to thank the team in person because they like were like this system is the thing that saved our lives. Yeah, like we'd be dead without you guys. I'm like that's crazy because you don't think about like when you when you grow up and you think of like these moments where like oh I'm gonna be an astronaut I'm gonna be a doctor like you never think of the support team like you're never told of the support team and what's done but then when you really look into these things you realize that like like these people are just the tip of the iceberg yeah there's so many moving parts teamwork is real <laughs> but yeah that was like her big thing uh same year she marries a man named David Katz this was her last husband because her second one didn't work out. That happens. And unfortunately, I didn't get a lot of this, but her one of her sons, Howard, died of AIDS at the age of 31. Okay. So this was 1989. So she had to go through that. And that was pretty rough. A year later, she retires as an engineer and then immediately mm-hmm. writes a book called You Can Be a Woman Engineer with her husband. Cool. Here's the thing. She can't find a publisher for the book. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Okay, so there's a podcast with the Jealous Curator. So if anyone's in the art world, that's it's a really, really big one. And I'm blanking on the host's name right now. But she's also a writer, and she did, like, an art history book emphasizing women in art history. Oh, cool. And when she – yeah, when she – and she's done, I think, another one since this initial publication. But when she was shopping it around, a lot of publishers were like – why do we need to publish that? And she's like, well, because in textbooks, usually less than 10% of the artists in textbooks are women. And that's being generous. And I guess they were like, yeah, but we really don't see who the market would be. W- women. W- little girls. Women. Like, <laughs> want to be in the arts or like the arts or just have a fondness or appreciation for them. I was like, what? <laughs> oh are you kidding God. me? Well, thankfully... She obviously found a publisher. It's been very successful, and she's done a great job with her platform, like amplifying contemporary, like women artists and you know, just contemporary artists in general. Right. But that was in the last ten years, and yet here we are, decades ago. And your scientist was, sounds like was running into pretty much the same attitude. Same fucking thing. Nineteen ninety. So thirty yeah. years ago, two decades yep. ago, and they're still like, ah. Uh... And it was so bad for her that she just decided to publish it herself. I mean, good that she followed through. She, you know, went through with it. Yeah. And, like, it actually started an entire book series geared towards preteen girls, encouraging them to get into science or fields that aren't really populated by women because, again, mm-hmm. we need that representation. Yeah. And then she wrote them and her husband illustrated them because he was actually an architect. Okay. Yeah. So there was one that was like, you can be a woman architect. You can be a woman animator, woman cardiologist. Woman Egyptologist, woman marine biologist, woman softball player. Twenty-two titles. I, that one's softball players. 
pretty specialty to women in general, I'd argue. <laughs> There's not many men moving in on that territory. It's it like, what? Like, some of these titles were like, that's just random, but okay. And there were 22 titles of it. And then five of them were translated into Spanish. Nice. Yeah. I'm like, what? She, like, went around for, like, the rest of her time. And, like, honestly, every job, other job in her life, she poured herself into this series. Sold 100,000 of these books toward the country, held in-person readings and seminars. And then I think she made, like, little lesson kits for, the, like, others to lead their own seminars. I guess this is for, mm -hmm. like, teaching material for educators. Yeah. And that's just kind of what she did in her, in her downtime, her retiredness. She died of cancer mm -hmm. 2016 in California. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, like all these things, like everything she did was to like, one, do what she loved, which was engineering. And two, help other women out and realize that like people are like, we're so underrepresented in everything. Hey, by the way, like you can do these things. It's not hard. I mean, it is hard, but it's, it's possible. And having that encouragement from a young age, that can really make a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was like. In terms of. Yeah. Kids seeing that. This is a reality. This could be an option if I want it to be. I can study Egypt and mummies. So that's all I got, but I thought she'd be cool to talk about. No, that sounds fun. I, with some of the news going on, just like with the abortion ban in Texas right now, yeah. and kind of Delta hitting, but mostly the abortion ban, I was like, I, I'm like, I'm either going to try to find someone to cover who's like, has dealt with that specifically in their artwork. Or something escapist. So I kind of want the escapist route. Oh, good. Cats? Many cats. No, no, it's not cats this time. It's a bit of a wild card. So today, my segment's actually filled with drama llamas. <sighs> I've got suicide. So if you're not feeling that, we'll see you next episode. Just It's a brief mention of it. So there, there's suicide, there's scandal, there's unrequited love. Oh, man. All in the world of origami. <laughs> okay. Yes, I was not expecting that either. <gasps> oh, my God. So <laughs> I was like, this will be lovely. I'll cover a paper artist. I've never done that before. And the more I kept reading, the more I was like, holy shit, there's some drama going on. <laughs> okay. Wait. She is kind of a sculptor, though. Yes. Technically, <laughs> I consider origami, that's, it's a form of sculpture. So you're right. I'm technically doing a sculptor today. You could argue I'm technically doing a paper artist or a fiber artist. Oh, that's hilarious. Dealer's choice. That's hilarious. Please tell me. Please tell me all the drama llamas. I can't wait. Okay. So that's going to pretty much be the second half of my segment if just drama llamas. So just bear with me while I give you a little bit of context leading up oh, to it. Oh, God. Okay? But yeah, so today we are covering Argentinian paper folder. You said Argentinian origami. Yes. I, throughout today, I'm going to use paper folder because while she was working, that was the term used in Argentina. Okay. All right. Paper folder, paper folding. Paper folding. Okay. Yeah, because origami is like specifically... It's the same thing. It's just that origami didn't actually become into wider usage until like the 1960s onwards oh. in the United States. Got it. Yeah. I say paper folding. It is origami. It's all the same. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. 
So this is another thing that's different. I'm going to go by the artist's last name for today because I looked up specifically an Argentinian pronunciation of her first name. And I'm like, it just it sounds like Licia, Licia? like from the room, like Lisa, <laughs> you tell me apart, Lisa. But so it's Li- Licia, Licia Montoya, Licia Montoya. Yeah, so it's L I G I A. Yes, but I'm gonna say Montoya the entire episode. Just roll with it, Montoya. Yes, Montoya <laughs> is where we are today. Hello, I I know another movie reference. <laughs> My name is Inigo Montoya. Just get it out. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna not. I'm not gonna take it. It's fine. <laughs> So movie references aside, before we jump into Montoya's life, pretty much everything I was able to read about her came from one source, and that's Laura Rosenberg's book, Paper Life, the story of Alicia Montoya. Now, usually I pull from multiple sources, but I made an exception because, all right, like one, let's be honest, in the art world, there's not going to be a lot of much like critical attention given to like a paper folding artist. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's not a thing. And uh, two, the author, Laura, she is Argentinian. And so she was able to interview Montoya's family for her book. Okay. Yeah, so she was able to, like... Actually have, like, a full one, like... like Connection. Primary source. Yeah, and, like, it's not like she was some, like, American coming in to, like, a different continent trying to find out about someone. And, you know, that miscommunication could occur. So kudos to her for all the effort she put in. She's also the first to admit she's not a historian, but Laura's own passion for paper folding, like as an enthusiast, and also I think her background as a journalist, it does carry over into crafting this one credible source about Montoya's life. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I I do recommend the book to anyone who wants to find out more. It's a fairly short format, but she does a good job kind of covering her life. So for Montoya's life, we are headed back to Argentina in 1920. And that is where Montoya was born to Spanish immigrant parents. So I didn't realize, but like Argentina in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that was like a major place for European immigrants to like move to. Oh, yeah. So parents were part of that movement. That contributed to the capital city, Buenos Aires, being dubbed the Paris of South America. So that's where Montoya's parents, they originally settled down. Dad worked as a general storekeeper. Mom worked at a really posh department store in finance. And eventually dad's job did take them out of the city to a small town like hours away. Her first 11 years were spent growing up in this like fairly rural area alongside her younger sister. Mm -hmm. And from a young age, it was apparent that Montoya was different. Different? So she, she was incredibly shy. Yeah, like, she wouldn't play with the other kids her age. Like, she would kind of stay inside with her mom. And when out-of-town family would come visit, like, she would run away and hide. Oh, no. Yeah, and and that shyness does carry over into her adult life. But at that point, I don't know if it's maybe social anxiety. No idea. But So she was always very reserved growing up. She needed a Milena. You know what? She definitely did. Although I will say I didn't personally run and hide. From, okay, I only did that from one family member, but <laughs> he's butthole, so that doesn't count. That was fair. That is fair. Anyway, <laughs> for her and her family, they 
things were going pretty well. And 1929 hits. That's when the Great Depression affects everyone. You know, the family is still well off, though. But they decide, you know what? Now is a good time to relocate to Spain. Oh, okay. You know. Yeah, they're like, this is a small town. We're really not interested in living in a small town anymore. You know, we've got the money they can afford to move away and to, you know, her parents to go back home. Also, there was an outbreak of the plague in their town. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, this is like the late 1920s, <laughs> early 1930s. So the parents were like, no, we're we're moving. Oh, God. This is why I avoid most small towns. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. So 1931, Montoya is 11, and the family, they go from this, like, really rinky-dink rural town to a very ritzy seaside resort in Spain. Oh, damn. Yes. It's a very posh area. They spend their summers inland with family because rent during the summertime gets, like, way too expensive. Yeah. But, I mean, meanwhile, though, the kids go to school there, and they have a really good education system. Hmm. That must have been a crazy culture shock. I, Yes, you know what? I didn't think about it like that, but I know this region was very much like a European vacation spot mm-hmm. during that time. Yeah. So it had to be pretty interesting to live in. I mean, I imagine it was quieter in the off-season, but... Still, they they were exposed to, I think, a lot growing up, and their parents really fostered with their daughters that kind of encouragement and education and exposing them to the world. Oh, nice. Yeah, which, I mean, was cool because, like, their parents also had the money to be able to do that. So this is where Montoya, she's growing up. You know, she learned a little bit of English and some French at school and would spend summers with her cousins. Now, she did graduate high school at the age of 17 right before the Spanish Civil War started. Oh, dear. Please tell me she got the fuck out of there. They did. So I know you mentioned that a little bit last episode with your Spanish marine biologist. Uh, Just really quick recap for the the Civil War. Basically, the king was like, deuces, I'm out. Yeah. Power vacuum. And it was a right-wing military versus people who wanted a republic and not a monarchy. Oh, dear. Yeah. So, spoiler, the the military won. (laughs) Now... (laughs) Montoya's family, they were progressive. So they were like, yeah, we really need to get out of here. Goodbye. And they head back to Argentina. Uh-huh. And I mean, again, like, this is a case where they had the money that, like, dad was able to leave ahead of time. And he was able to arrange for safe travel for his wife and his two daughters to come back. Wow. Yeah. Because, like, during the three years that the war went on, like, over half a million people died. Did they pick Buenos Aires instead? Yes, so they went back to the capital city, and that's where, my understanding, the the family stayed afterwards. They they didn't bother going back out into the country or anything. Good, good. They learned from their first time. I know, right? And also, like, I mean, the equivalent of being out in the country, but, like, you could also live in, like, New York City. Or, like, Paris. Like, there's so much to do in these cities. It's great. (laughs) So that's the kind of resources that, like, Montoya had. And when she gets... Back to Buenos Aires, like, she basically just focuses on her education. Okay. So, going from one country to another, she did have to, like, re-verify her high school diploma. Gets enrolled in college, gets her teaching degree in literature, and then she eventually does become a librarian. Nice. You know, there was a point in my life where I was like, I could totally be a librarian. Yeah, but who would tell you to be quiet, though? No one. I am my own master. (laughs) (laughs) 
I would be like the Miss Frizzle of librarians. Yeah. What would you specialize in? Oh, I don't know. Probably medical. Yeah, medical biology techs. That could still be an option. Nope. I'm gonna save people's lives. Ugh. Excuses, excuses. <laughs> All right. Well, Montoya was not saving lives because she went into the Department of Philosophy and Literature as a librarian. Oh. And it, it seems like she took that route because, I mean, one, she was smart and, like, enjoyed these really solitary tasks. And Two, apparently it was a great career to have if you didn't want to be around other people. <laughs> I mean, obviously you're going to be around a few. And she did not. <laughs> but it's it's not going to be that many. <laughs> Here's Montoya's family. They, they were concerned about her. So basically they were like, honey, don't you want to like go out and meet friends and maybe date like she didn't really do any of that and she just kept like a, a very quiet life for herself and that was just one aspect of her personality that just you know was not going to change so i mean instead she settled into like her own routine and she spent like her late 20s early 30s working at her university like i said like as a librarian in the philosophy and literature department yeah so 1951 about 1331, that is when things changed for Montoya. Mm -hmm. So she had been working at the, the library for a few years. Her boss gets a letter from New York City. It had been sent from a researcher from New York City all the way down to an anthropologist in Florida who then sent it to his colleague in Buenos Aires, so Montoya's boss. Hmm. And this researcher, Gershon Legman, he was trying to put together, like, a comprehensive list of books on paper folding. He wanted, like, any and every scrap of information he could get. And was reaching out to basically anyone who could tell him anything. Right. And when the letter landed in Buenos Aires, Montoya's boss turned to her and was like, Hey, you're the expert. You should write him back. Wait. Wait, so she picked up paper folding? So previously, Montoya... She had made some paper foldings as gifts for her boss's daughters. Mm. But by her own account, like, during her school years and after, she didn't really keep up with her childhood interests of paper folding. Yeah. So when, like, Montoya shared these paper foldings with her boss, like, she remarked how he saw them as, quote, artistic creations. But from her perspective, she was like, oh, he's totally missing the history of the forms themselves. Oh, okay. Yeah, which I'm like, I, I think I'm with your boss, like... I'm the same way. Yeah. <laughs> like, I see paper folding or origami as, like, a type of sculpture. Yeah, I don't I don't see... Well, I didn't realize that there were... I mean, I guess I should have realized that there was a history behind it, but... Yeah, there, there's really rich forms, but, like, I mean, for me, I'm just like, yeah, it's like sculpture where math and art go hand in hand. Like, who am I to judge these people who bring Euclidean constructions and compound platonic polyhedras into their art? Like, you know what? To each their own. Did it hurt saying those words? It does. And I can't tell you what any of that means, so don't <laughs> ask me. Okay? I thought you might get a kick out of it because... <laughs> I did. If you go on our, like, JSTOR where we, we find research for our podcast, it's all, like, you know, peer-reviewed critical journal essays and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I type in, origami as art. That's the type of titles I get. 
Yeah. Like, what's a compound platonic polyhedra? I don't know. <laughs> Tell me about origami in the history of, like, art. Tell me that. There is nothing. It's just geometry. Or algebra. Like, that was a thing. Like, algebraic kind of folding. Co- I was like, all right, that is not my cup of tea. Moving yeah. on. But, yes, aside from the mathematic aspect of things, there's this really rich cultural history of patterns being passed down. Oh, cool. So, like, in Spain, the term for origami translates into little bird because in Spain, like, the pinnacle of paper folding was a little bird-like form. No. Yeah. Like the crane? No, it's not a crane. It's a, it's a bird. I didn't include the Spanish term because I would just butcher it. But we can include a picture of it on our show notes. But So there's these regional preferences in terms of what is kind of like a ideal manifestation of paper folding, depending on where you live. And so this guy, Gershon, oh. that's what he was trying to find out. He was trying to, like, research all of this, like, across the world. I'm going to tell you, you know, she learned in Spain as a kid. And she said, quote, my first teacher of paper folding was one of my cousins in Spain, then a student, now a physician. But who made me what I am was Gershon Legman whom I met through the director of her library. Sincerely, I believe all the gods, all of them, must have ordained at this meeting. Hmm. Because he was a catalyst for her totally getting back into paper folding and then getting involved like in this international community. Oh my god. I'm scrolling through origami right now. There's a lot. So... Growing up, Montoya, she would spend her summers in Spain, you know, alongside her cousins, just spending hours entertaining themselves with paper folding. Mm -hmm. And Montoya, she was inventive. Like, she would create her own designs. But, like I said, as she grew older and moved back to Argentina, like, she kind of lost interest and went dormant with it. And that, that was until this letter from a stranger in America completely rekindled her passion for paper folding. It's so cool. So, you know, the letter comes into the library, she reaches back out to him, and that started years of correspondence between the two of them. Oh, are they lovers? No, they were not lovers. Okay. Uh, he, he was just one of the many people that Montoya would, you know, routinely write to within this international community. I mean, she had letters coming in from all over, from like Japan and France and Italy and the U.S., and this is all during like the 1940s, like, 50s, and 60s. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of her work, it's... I feel like for us today, like, it's really easy for us just to look at them and be like, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, it's just paper. Shrug. Move on. There's just, like, this quiet, like, intense stillness to these really small pieces she would make. She made, like, I'm looking at her stuff now. There's really not a lot of it on Google. Although, this shark is pretty banging. Yeah, so she would do animals and flowers and some insects, too. Uh, some figurative work, although I didn't really find that many examples of it. Which would, it's cool because her little figures, like, would actually stand. Like, I will point you to this little, like, manger scene. The nativity ones, yeah. Oh my god, yes, it is yeah. standing upright on both feet. What the fuck? One thing that's kind of fun about, like, the nature of the medium is that, like, there's only so many techniques for paper folding, but there's, like, an infinite amount of ways that you can combine that. Montoya, she would just pick up on like a handful of techniques and just run with it. And she would kind of complain that like she has an idea, she starts making something and she has a hard time stopping because everything just snowballs. And she's like, well, if I do a slightly different fold, I could do something totally different. And if I did a slightly different fold on this step, it would be something completely different. Isn't that like the mark of an artist, though? You just never are satisfied enough? Well, I just also having that inspiration too, that passion. Yeah. Just there for hours. 
Fold. And she did. Fold. Fold. So majority, she would observe what other paper folders were doing. And then she would kind of consider that and have her own take on using these certain folds or, you know, approaching a certain form, like yeah. how to make a flower or an animal design and really make it her own. So she wasn't grabbing, like, books and then, like, copying exactly from those books. I mean, there's a part of that for learning, but she was actively creating her own designs. Very cool. One, one great example of just how her mind functioned in terms of even being able to create these things was so in early days when she was getting to know Gershon he had the last few steps of a Japanese pattern for a dragonfly oh but not like the the first half of the steps but not the other half yeah so for the life of me he was like I, I can't figure out how this pattern was started yeah so he milled it off to Montoya you know basically saying like good luck yeah and a few weeks later, he gets, like, an envelope in the mail. And she's like, hey, I solved it. <laughs> okay, so as she put it, she said, quote, I don't think this is exactly what we were searching for. But mm-hmm. as the Italians say, even if it's not true, it is well conceived. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay, she figured it out. So just looking at these really rough sketches that just do, like, the outlines... She was able to, like, mentally deconstruct the pattern and realize that based off of the forms and the existing folds, the pattern started, like, not with a traditional square piece of paper, but a hexagon piece of paper. Oh, those bastards. Yeah. Like, I mean, and essentially all she was going off of was just, like, roughly drawn schematic with, like, some poorly photocopied Japanese thrown in. That's pretty great. (laughs) I think that type of mindset, like, I think it also would have made her, like, a good engineer in terms of oh yeah, taking these really abstract two-dimensional things and, you know, creating a three-dimensional object with them. That's that's a brain power I do not understand. Like, I mean, I don't think like that. I mean, that's, like, also someone who can look at flat fabric and be like, okay, yeah, I can make you a suit. <laughs> You're like, how do you do that? That is black magic. <laughs> and everything's so precise, too. <laughs> so I have, a, I have a respect for people who can think like that because my brain is just on a no. totally yeah. different level like I'm good I don't need that yeah I got other things so I think it was pretty impressive but yeah so she could work out other people's designs she would create her own and the pieces that she was making they were very small and they're they're like less than two inches tall oh god really <laughs> yeah. yeah they're so tiny and I feel like the majority of them are actually less than an inch that's insane. Can you imagine the size of those folds? Like, no. Yes, the person, or just like hunched over at your desk. No. Nope. And then studying as a librarian, it did serve her well because, you know, like the cataloging system for books, Montoya devised her own system for or- organizing her creations. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, for, you know, based on the, the folds or the points, like this right. whole system. Oh, my God. And she would use, you know, square, hexagon, and pentagon-shaped paper. And then sometimes she would combine two sheets of paper and, you know, would make these snowflakes and animals and flowers. And, like, as analytical as paper folding can be, Montoya's work has also been described as similar to poetry in that you're, you're trying to create a form in the least amount of folds possible. Okay. Like a succinct... Yes, like, how much can you strip away but still have the essence of what you're saying? Exactly. No. 
which it was like, oh, it's like a really creative way to think about it. I think one reason why over the years, like she's been overlooked and I feel like origami within the fine art world is just dismissed. It's just there's a lot of elitism in the art world. Mm-hmm. And really to get started with paper folding, you just need like a scrap piece of paper and some imagination and you're good. There are no like red ribbons to like cut through. You just kind of sit there and do your thing and see what happens. Yes, it's very accessible, and I feel like that was used to its advantage by uh, another person that I'll mention later on who helped spread the word in more the American market in the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that ease also kind of has relegated it to, like, oh, that's something kids do. Mm, no, that's not something kids do. And even today, there's still a little bit of that prejudice in terms of taking it seriously as an art. Let me let me tell you something. People tried to teach me how to paper fold when I was younger as a child, and I fucked it up completely because as oh. a child, you don't think of things that, like, you don't think of the finesse that it takes to do a thing. So you just kind of, like, fold and see what happens, and it never comes out the way you want it to, ever. Uh, but that can be part of the fun, though. Yeah. Yeah, but you're right. It's not It's not for everyone. No. Well, Matoya, she was an active member, you know, on her own terms within the community. Mm-hmm. She, paper folding was second to everything else in her life. Right. So after a few years, Matoya, she stopped working at the library and she stayed at home caring for everyone else. Okay. And she kind of fell into a role of like spinster aunt. Okay. Yeah. You know, she would take care of her aging parents. At this point, her sister and her husband and their kids were all living together. So she would watch after her nephews. In one letter, when Toya said, she's like, I live among pots and pans. Oh, no. Yeah. It, was just, it, it seemed kind of conflicting because she's like, I like doing it. I like cooking for everyone. But at the same time, it just seems like I'm always cleaning up after everyone in the kitchen, like, no. you know, taking care of them. And this, this is totally speculation on my part, but... Like, I kind of get the sense that Montoya defined herself in her usefulness to others. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, rather than presenting herself based on her own accomplishments and, you know, achievements, it's, well, I'm a caretaker for my parents. And like, oh, I, I help with my nephews and that, that kind of thing. Sounds like somebody I know. Yeah. I, I feel like most people know someone who's kind of like that. Yeah. And you're like, why? But, I mean, each their own. But I, I wondered if maybe maybe there was some social anxiety that played into it. But, again, that's all speculation on my part. Ugh. End of the day, once everyone had settled down to go to sleep, not swim and toy yet, she would spend her time working on her paper foldings. That's when it was party time. It really was. <laughs> she was in her room, either folding very tiny pieces of paper... <laughs> Or she was writing back to one of her many international correspondences, writing about tiny pieces of paper. <laughs> oh, no. And, and she would mail her tiny pieces of paper with the larger pieces of paper. <laughs> oh, man. Her hands must have been dry AF from all that. Paper. I don't know. I, sh- I, know sh- I think she used a typewriter for the most part for her letters. But, yeah, she would, like, create these designs and fold them and then, like, send instructions and examples of them, like, out to her colleagues yeah so even with all these people that she's writing to she does keep it very professional right though and like i'm sure to an extent like she probably considered maybe some people friends but i don't know she was very 
kind of strict in terms of how much of herself she was willing to give away in her letters, and it was not a lot. Ah, very guarded human being. Yes, yeah. she was. Uh, now, there was a point for a few years in the 1950s when Montoya's interest for origami did have her working for another Argentinian paper folder. Oh, there was another one. <laughs> there, there were a handful active at the time in, in Buenos Aires. Uh, this is a little bit of where the drama llama starts. Okay, so he worked as a dentist, and he filled his office with paper folds of, like, his design. He made his own dentist office, like, a little museum to, like, his own creation. And Matoya wasn't really sold on his style. She called it slapdash and trashy. Oh, gasp. She did learn a lot working with him. And she was helping to draft, like, hundreds of drawings for his own paper folding designs to be included in a publication that he would he would do later on. Okay. But the problem was that he was a huge butthole. Oh no. Like Montoya wrote, quote, from his manners, one would expect only disagreeable things. He's one of the most wretched people I have ever met. Ugh. If he goes on like that, he's going to die alone like a dog. <laughs> Oh, my God. I was like, holy moly, this is, like, the sauciest, like, <laughs> correspondence letters that I've ever come across in researching the podcast. Gloves come off. She finally shows some sort of, like, passion, like, anger. Oh, goodness. They, yeah, they would bicker a bit. Oh, God. But, like, in the end, like, she created these hundreds of drawings for his future book. And there came a point after a few years, she was like, look, I can't handle this anymore. I'm out. Even though he was such a pain in the ass, like, she had such a love of the craft. And I think he had a slightly larger network. Yeah. That he was coming across newer techniques that she didn't immediately have access to. She still wanted to keep, like, in the loop. Did he find out that she was talking dirty behind his back? Kind of later. Oh, no. In the meanwhile, she recommended another person to replace her and this new person was under strict orders this guy was like do not give montoya my designs and the new lady was like yeah yeah okay and then totally did <laughs> so that way montoya would still know like what he was working on and what new things were coming oh up my and like God. <laughs> also kind of critiquing things because this guy sometimes he would give her like paper foldings to do so she could work out all the steps and he wouldn't tell her a step what he apparently had this, like, overly convoluted system for how to go about his designs. But also, she's like, if you're going to publish a book telling people how to do this, you can't leave out steps. No, you really can't. You can't. Like, you're being a butthole. <laughs> so that didn't work out, but she still kind of kept tabs on him, which I think is funny. That she had, like, a mole that had infiltrated. <laughs> oh, my God. The world of origami. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> right? I was, and where? We are not done yet. Right? Oh, my God. So while Montoya is juggling these, like, domestic tasks and then working for that butthole paper folder, she, you know, she's keeping up with all these letters and internationally what's going on. And at times, the guy who kind of got her started with everything, Gershon, in his letters, he would kind of, like, express his admiration for her. And Montoya was very quick to shut that shit down. Oh, dear. 
Like, no, thank you. Yeah, like, at one point, she, like, like chided him, and she was essentially like, you English speakers use the word love a lot. I don't think that's what you mean. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Let me have some other word suggestions for you. <laughs> so, he got the point. <laughs> But there was one point that Gershon confessed to another leading paper folder that, you know, he had fallen in love with Montoya, like, as much as a man could for a woman that he's never met. Oh, my God. And, like, the paper folder was a joint acquaintance of Gershon and Montoya. It was American Lillian Oppenheimer. Oh, no. So Lillian is credited with introducing the word origami and origami itself, like, into America and the Western world. Okay. And she also, like, formed and ran an organization called Origami USA. It's still a thing today. Are there t-shirts? You, I did not check out their website, but you could probably buy some t-shirts. Oh, my God. Don't know in the 1950s if they were doing that, but <laughs> they were doing exhibi- exhibitions, you know, because she really wanted to spread the word about paper folding. Mm-hmm. And they would do publications. And in one of her publications... She published what Gershon had told her about Montoya. What? Why would you publish that? Don't know. I guess part of it, Lillian was doing a piece about Montoya. As Montoya put it, she said, it fell on me like a bomb. Oh, my God. I think she was so insulted and devastated and felt like privacy had been violated. Yeah. Like, she was not happy. At all. There wasn't anything to go off of. Why would you publish that? I don't understand. I wasn't able to find, like, an exact copy of the text in terms of what was published. But if, I mean, I could see maybe from Lillian's point of view, she just wanted to show, like, oh, like, here's admiration that people have from respected people in the field for this Argentinian paper folder who didn't have as much, like, international recognition. So in a way, she might have been trying to hype her up. I just... I don't know the whole story, but Montoya was fucking pissed. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I think she was so pissed. So fast forward a few years. And Lillian, I'm pretty sure, was going to go travel to Argentina just to meet Montoya. Oh, no. And she wrote to her. And she's like, look, I'm so excited. The South American trip is finally happening. I'm coming down with my family. You know, once I'm actually in Buenos Aires, like, I'll send you details for us to meet because she's like I just I can't wait to meet you because she really respected her well Montoya was like uh no ah! and she even wrote that like she was explicit she's like when Lillian shows up I'm gone what? I'm peacing out so Lillian shows up Montoya's mom opens the door and Lillian's like hey like I'm Montoya's like colleague from New York City like I came all the way just to see her like is she here and Montoya's mom was like, no. Uh, so at, like, 40 years old, Montoya completely ghosted this woman. What the f- Yeah, Lillian was like, well... That is not okay. No, and Lillian was like, well, is she, like, does she is she out of the city? Like, can I go meet her? And the mom was like, no, like, she's, like, gone, gone. And Lillian, she was so sweet. She was like, what if I hired a plane? Oh! <gasps> Like, to fly to her. Like, because she had flown from, like, one continent to another. And I think she was just so looking forward to it. And apparently, from the description, she was almost in tears. Oh, my God. She really just wanted to meet 
Montoya. But instead, she, like, spent some time in her room and, you know, looking at her space and where she made. And I think that was something, you know, just to experience, like, where Montoya worked. Oh, my God. And, you know, things were professional between them afterwards. I think it was probably a little – the relationship was probably a little chilly after that. But yeah. Whoa. I don't know. Maybe that was part of maybe some social anxiety that, like, Montoya was like, I just can't deal with this. Like, you did this one thing that hurt me a few years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. So there was that. At, at the same time, she's she's also kind of exhibiting in the community. But, again, it's, it's on her own terms. So yeah. Gershon, he was trying to organize some international exhibitions, like showcasing paper folding work from around the world. Mm-hmm. There was going to be an exhibition in Europe. It ended up being a solo show for a Japanese artist in Paris. But in the lead up to it, he was like, hey, you know, would you be willing to send me some work? I'm going to try to have it in the show. And Matoya was so excited. Yay. Yeah. She sent him like a few works of, or a few boxes just filled with work, mostly like folded flowers. And even though ultimately like her work wasn't included because it ended up being like a solo show, mm-hmm. the idea of having that international kind of visibility. Right. Which is so exciting. And Gershon, you know, he was someone who was always advocating for her work, you know, pushing it to be, you know, widely published because that was kind of a format of getting the word out there about people's designs for paper folding. love. Yes, for sure. (laughs) And Montoya said about it, she was like, look, I, I believe I was invested with the grace of creating rather than publishing or selling my creations. Yeah. Oh, God. As she put it herself, she was like, I don't want to be someone in society. Like, she just wanted to be quiet behind the scenes. Like, no one paid attention to her. But one person that was not advocating for Montoya was the old dentist that she used to work for. What? Yeah. He comes back in the scene. So, 1962, he finally gets around to publishing those books he was working on. Mm -hmm. Two volumes on paper folding included Hundreds of illustrations that Montoya had worked on. And writing to Gershon, Montoya wrote, quote, I'm really furious with him. First, he was incapable of sending me a copy, not even as compensation. I don't know how he doesn't die of shame. Secondly, on the title page, my drawings appear as his original illustrations. You and I know that this is a monstrous lie after hundreds of drawings I have prepared for him. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then on top of that, there was another local paper folder who was, like, showcasing in Buenos Aires, like, in a gallery and around town. Yeah. He had copied some of Matoya's original designs and was passing them off on his as his own. Jesus Christ. It's just paper folding. <laughs> I know. But, like, it's kind of like, you know, the copyright of these, like, original designs that people are making. Oh, my God. No, 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 no. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's fucking, that's, no. No, that's intellectual property. That's not okay. I, did she fight? I would have fought. She did. So, she came across one display in a, a window at a store, and it had credited this other guy, and she went in and talked to the shop owners, and she was like, no, 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 like, that's my design. She was like, also, he didn't even do it that well. <laughs> Like, she was kind of embarrassed that he had used her designs and, like, not even nailed it. Oh, my God. Yeah, but she said, she was like, quote, I wonder how many times he did this to me or other paper folders. Oh, my God. So, I mean, 1960s. How are you going to find out? Exactly. Did he get his due? 
I have no, I don't know how that played out. I just feel like she was probably a fairly non-confrontational person. So wouldn't say anything maybe to him, but like spread the word that this guy is trash. Yeah. Or being a little, you know, questionable. Yeah. And like, she was my assistant. So like, it's technically mine, right? No big deal. That was an attitude that the dentist had later on. Oh my God. Going into her 40s, like, things were hard for Montoya. Like, she, she was just not in a good place. So I, I don't have exact dates, but during this time, like, her sister moved her family out of the house, and that left Montoya with her elderly parents. Eventually, they both passed away. Mm. And that, that left her alone. Oh, no. And she, she was depressed. So she did see a therapist, and she did start antidepressants, but, like, ultimately, that just it wasn't enough. And in 1967, at the age of 47, Montoya overdosed and passed away. Oh, my God. I know it was hard for her family, too, because her sister saw it. And her sister was like, look, come stay with us, like, vacation with us, spend time with us. Like, yeah. It just, it wasn't, it wasn't enough. Like, I think as Montoya put it in one of her letters, because there's, there's a lot of letters that the author and her, her book were able to find and go through for the process of writing about her. I, I, she's like, I feel like a burden. She was like, what am I supposed to do now? You know, I've been taking care of family. Family's gone. What do I do? Yeah. So that was, it was, it was hard. Um, and it, it, it did take some time for word of her death to reach the paper folding community. But I mean, when it did, people only had good things to say about Montoya. Aww. So Lillian, I mean, she called her the angel of origami. So that's sometimes how she's known. Aww. And then Gershon he, you know, he praised his friend and her skill and like a true MVP. When he was writing a tribute to her, he took the opportunity to call out the dentist for not crediting Montoya in his books. Fuck yeah. He was like, well, I'm at it. You know who's an asshole? This guy. <laughs> More drama llamas. Oh my God. Yeah. Because Mr. Butthole Dentist wrote a response being a butthole and saying, like, well, so what? Like, she was just hired help. And, like, besides, she didn't know anything about paper folding and also tried to steal my designs. Um, I will fight. Yeah. Okay, so in the late 1960s, like, the paper folding community, like, kind of canceled him. (laughs) Because... Like I said, like everyone just had good things to say about her, oh and when th- this and it's this is public like this is a public exchange in the paper folding like magazine publication going back and forth, <laughs> and people would like jump in and write opinions, and they're all just slamming this guy. <laughs> and on top of it, they were like, "How dare you!" Like Fuck obviously, she was going through a hard time. Yeah, and, like, <laughs> this is how you treat her memory. Fight. Fight, fight. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was. <laughs> he has so to find salty. another art to do. Fuck that guy. I know. I know. And I get like what we're we're in our like fifty something episode. I was like, I don't. I've never had this much drama in any of my episodes. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh, this could be like a a show. It's 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 a lot. It it could be a show. And I know I've. I've included a good bit of information today, and there was even more. And I was like, I just, I gotta, I gotta try to thin this out. <laughs> but, um, yeah. 
so that's what happened after she passed away. Um, <laughs> God. And, you know, like, while Montoya, like, liked to keep to herself, like, she was generous in sharing what she knew and, like, the designs that she was creating. And end of day, like, that's what the community knew and defended about her and respected her for. And, like, you know, over the years, she just kind of slowly, like, faded from memory. So I think it's great because, I mean, honestly, without the work and effort of the author Rosenberg, you know, put into her book, Paper Life, mm-hmm. like, there would essentially be no information about Montoya online. Damn. And while Montoya, like, her work is not, like, explicitly feminist at all, mm-hmm. I, I think she's a really good example of that. Of all the people that we cover who there is a lot of information about, there's so many more who I think – in part because they were women, were just left out of the historical records. Completely erased. And yeah. forgotten. And I think, honestly, without this one book, that would be the case about Montoya. Montoya is an angel. Yes. The angel of origami. That is my drama llama filled segment today. <laughs> a little sad, but I feel yeah. like a good ride for the most part. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that is my segment for today. And if you guys have stuck around this long, as always... We super appreciate it. You guys are pretty awesome. Yay! Thank you. Oh, and a very special thank you to my buddy Scott, because he's the one that told me about Judith, and I forgot to say this earlier. Oh, know. great. Well, thank you, Scott. Yeah, I don't actually know if he's going to get to this episode anytime soon, but when he does... It's there. It's, it's waiting there. for him. It's waiting for him. Thanks, man. Milana, if people want to maybe submit suggestions to us... Yeah. For other artists and scientists and maybe find out more about the people we've covered today. Where can they go? So we have an email. That's info at myfavoritefeminists.com, obviously. Our website is myfavoritefeminists.com. Our Facebook and Instagram are myfavoritefeminist. And our Twitter is at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. You can listen to us where you can listen to any podcast. So any of the major podcast platforms, you know, because you're listening right now. And it takes two seconds to like, subscribe, share with your friends. Let us know if you've ever had professional drama llamas. I've definitely had professional drama llamas. The vet world is filled with professional drama llamas. As a independent studio artist who has my own studio and works in my own bubble, I, I tend to avoid a good bit of it. <laughs> she only really has to do with the drama llama that her dog gives her, which is, I want more food, mom. Why do you hate me? Why are you starving me? Yeah. Or, that's a terrible color combination. I don't know if that really complements the mauve undertones. Are you really going for that type of look? And I'm like, dog, you're colorblind. What the hell? Get out of here. <laughs> Go away. Go. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, my my work is filled with it. It's just, just a hot mess. That's why I honestly can't wait to be a provider because a lot of the drama goes away when you're a provider. <laughs> you know what? On my end, a lot of the drama goes away when you start working from home for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like i should have done this years ago this is great (laughs) yeah i'm dealing with some drama at work now that's not even like medical related it's just like this one co-worker that's just as bad at her job oh there's always that one co-worker oh my god i can't with that always (laughs) thank you again for sticking with us and we'll see you guys next time (laughs) bye
was like, well, why the fuck didn't she get vaccinated? She's like, I don't know about this lady. But when I asked another pregnant woman about it, she was like, my family was freaking me out and telling me that it would cause, like, dwarfism in my baby. And I'm like, dwarfism doesn't? That's not science. You want to know how dwarfism happens? It happens during meiosis, not even after conception. What? <laughs> like, That's I not how this works. <laughs> no. 